Please open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 4. You say, wait a minute, this is Sunday morning. We're going through Revelation on Sunday night. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, but I was strangely impressed this week as I was uh, studying the messages that this one ought to come in the morning and will be in 1 Timothy tonight. So uh, if you're used to coming on Sunday night, your Bible will fall open to Revelation 4. And uh, if, you're, if you're not, come on Sunday nights and we'll complete this uh, the study. We began it in January 8th and uh, this uh, series through the book of Revelation. In the morning we're looking at 1 Timothy, but we'll look at 1 Timothy 2, Lord willing, 9 through 15 tonight. The overall theme of the book of Revelation is found in one verse. That's back in chapter 1 and verse 19, where John is told, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. I love it when there's a one verse that gives the whole outline for the book. That's exactly what we find in this verse. Chapter 1 records the things that John had already seen. The revelation of Christ as it was on the Lord's day. John was uh, a prisoner uh, of Rome, exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw Jesus walking through those seven lampstands representing the churches. Those were the things that, that already he has seen. In chapters two and three, he tells about the things that are. That was the study of the churches, the seven churches in Asia Minor. And that was a great uh, journey through those churches to see what uh, characteristics they had and what God told them and how they apply to us. So this morning, we, we begin this next section, uh, the things that shall be. In fact, if you look at chapter 4 and verse 1, at the end of the verse, we have the same wording as we did in Revelation 1.19. Uh, John is told, come up thither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. For the rest of the, the outline, there's a crescendo that, uh, that builds through the entire book. In Revelation 4 and 5, John describes a vision that will take place in heaven. In Revelation 6 through 20, he describes a vision of things that will take place on earth, that is, especially during the tribulation period. There are seven seals on a scroll that's opened. And as that scroll is opened on the seventh seal, there are seven trumpets that will sound. And in the seventh sound of the trumpet, there will be seven bowls of wrath that are poured out upon the earth. And that takes us all the way through to chapter 19, where we read about the return of Christ. Not the rapture, but the second coming, the return. And then Revelation 20, the millennium, the thousand-year rule of Christ. And so Revelation 4 and 5 are here for us, and, and they give us more details about what we'll be doing in heaven than any other passage in Scripture. Many of you sat under the ministry of Dr. David Allen. When he preached through Revelation 4 and 5, he said, There's relatively little said in the Bible about what God's people will do in heaven. But here are two chapters that give us some indications as to the pursuits, the occupation, and the bliss of those who are there. The title of the message this morning is taken from a phrase in verse 2, a throne was set in heaven. The word throne appears 61 times in the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, it's found 46 times. Revelation begins and ends with a, a reference to the throne. Revelation 1.4, John writes, from the seven spirits which are before his throne. 
In the last chapter, verse uh, 3, we read, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, that is the new Jerusalem, and his servants shall serve him. Now here in chapter 4, we only have 11 verses, but the word throne occurs 14 times. Yesterday, a king was crowned in Westminster Abbey. There are 43 monarchies in our world today, each one with a ruler called a king. Thrones are for kings. Thrones represent a place of power, of authority, of sovereignty. When I think of the display of earthly kings taking their crowns, sitting on thrones, the text of Revelation 11:15 comes to mind. And as I read it, the notes of Handel's Messiah come to mind. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. When we see the throne of God revealed in Revelation chapter 4, we recognize that God alone is the supreme ruler of the universe. What a king. What a throne. The invitation is given here at the very beginning. A door is opened in heaven and John is invited to come up. And as he's invited, let's ourselves go along with him and see what God revealed to him. In verse 1, the vision shown to John. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show these things to, which must be hereafter. Now back in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8, we saw a door of opportunity open to the church. In Revelation 3.20, we talked about the door of the heart. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Here, another door is open, and this is the, the door of heaven. And John gets a glimpse of what's inside. The first voice, that is, I believe, the voice that John heard back in chapter 1, in verses 10 and 11, John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, that is a loud blast of a voice, un unmistakable, saying, I am Alpha and Omega. So we know that voice has to be the voice of Jesus Christ, the first and the last, and what thou hast seen write in a book. Now the voice calls John to come hither. Come where I am. The voice told John that he would show him things that must be hereafter. Notice that little word must. It's an important word. It's a, it's a small three-letter word in Greek. But it emphasizes not just that these things will come to pass, that is, future tense things, that they will come, they will happen, but they must occur. God's plan of the ages will conclude with these events because God has determined them. Not only will they happen, they must happen. Now I see in verses 2 and 3 the appearance of the one who sat on the throne. This is God the Father. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Now John physically is still on that island of Patmos. But he is transported in his spirit 
to view what God wanted him to see and what God wanted him to write about. His attention was first drawn to the throne and then to the one who sat on that throne. The one sitting is described in terms of brilliant colors. John describes those colors with three gemstones that he knew about. He was associating what he saw and didn't understand with what he knew. The jasper stone, uh, that comes in a lot of beautiful colors, uh, usually reds, yellows, browns, greens. Uh, there are veins that uh, and swirls that run through a sardis stone uh, created because of the oxide that's in the quartz. Beautiful stones. The sardine stone was blood red in color and came from the area around Sardis, and that's where it got its name. These two stones were among the 12 stones that were set in the breastplate of the high priest, representing each stone representing one of the tribes in Israel. So the jasper and the sardine stone. They're also found when we get to the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 20, the first and the sixth layer of the foundation are made of those stones, those two stones. We also see on this throne a rainbow that surrounds the throne, further colored by the, the hues of an emerald. And so the jasper, the sardine, and the emerald. Now when we get to rainbows, we think of rainbows generally as, as half circles, but they're actually a complete circle. And in that spectrum of light, we see the red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. But beyond the violet are ultraviolet colors, and beyond the red are infrared colors. I had a, a teacher in school who was a scientist as well as a theologian. And he wrote this, The human eye can identify millions of colors in visible light. But John is here seeing all 64 octaves of electromagnetic radiation from cosmic rays to radio waves. Beyond this, he is seeing colors of the celestial realm that are beyond human description. For the first time in his life, he understands what God is light means. The psalmist wrote about God in Psalm 104, verse 2, who covereth thyself with light as with a garment. I can't imagine all the glories that are ahead. For we who have trusted Christ as our Savior, for the children of God. Remember the promise of Jesus when he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What a throne. What a God. We come to verse 4 and we find 24 elders. And round about the throne were 24 seats. And upon the seats I saw four and 20 elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. These elders were sitting on 24 seats. The word for seat is the Greek word thronos, the same word that's used to describe the throne which those seats are surrounding. And so here are lesser thrones where these elders are seated around the throne of God. Some say these elders are angels. I believe that they're human beings. If we look at the next chapter in Revelation, chapter 5, we'll just get a glimpse of verses 8 through 10, and we'll see that they're involved, these 24 elders are involved in praising the Lamb. They represent the prayers of the saints in golden, or they presented the, the prayers of saints in these golden bowls. They have harps, 
And they sing a, a song, a new song it's called, a song of redemption. Verses 9 and 10, they say, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. These are words of sinners who have been saved by God's grace. They're redeemed. In Revelation 4.4, they're described as being clothed in white robes. Those are the garments that are given to overcomers that we saw uh, to the church in in Revelation 3.5. They have crowns of gold on their heads. The Bible tells us about a crown of glory, a crown of life, a crown of righteousness, an incorruptible crown, different crowns that are given to his children. And all of these are given to, to believers. These elders will worship God by casting their crowns before the throne of God. The number 24 probably refers to the number of the people of God. There were 12 sons of Jacob who represent the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. There were 12 apostles in the New Testament who represent the church age. Now some think all 24 uh, are from the church age, Pentecost, sweet, some of the dispensationalists. Uh, we usually keep Israel and the church separate in prophecy, and that's important to do. But in eternity, all of those who belong to God will be together as his children, only by salvation. Okay? Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, all saved by Christ's work on Calvary. In the New Jerusalem, the gates of the city are made of pearls, and those pearls will bear the names of the tribes of Israel. The foundation stones are each inlaid with the names of the 12 apostles. And so I think this representation of the 24 elders is probably accurate in thinking of God's people throughout all ages. You are represented before the throne in these elders. Notice now we come to the seven spirits of God, verses 5 and the first portion of verse 6. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Here are the things that proceed out of the throne, as well as the things that are found before the throne. Those things that proceed out of the throne or from God's throne are lightning, thunderings, and voices. Lightning and thunder are demonstrations of the, of the sights and of the sounds of God's power. The voices would be an indication of God's revelation to man. He's communicating with man. He uses words. This is what Israel experienced at Mount Sinai. There were flashes of lightning. There were claps of thunder. And that caused holy fear of God. And Moses came down delivering the communication, the voice of God in the law. These then are things, uh, there, are, there are things proceeding out of the throne, and now there are things that are before the throne or in the presence of the throne. The seven lamps of fire are identified as the seven spirits of God. Now back in Revelation 1-4, when we saw that same terminology, seven spirits, we knew it was talking about one Holy Spirit. But the number of seven is that number of perfection, so the complete Holy Spirit. And I believe it's the same as we we see here. 
Before the throne is also a sea of glass like crystal. If you visit Washington, D.C., there's a reflection pool designed by Henry Bacon, built there just after the Lincoln Memorial was finished. It's, it, it is between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial, and it stands to emphasize those structures. It's a, it's a reflection of the image, and it's a dramatic reflection of, of, those, of those buildings. Well, the sea of glass before the throne of God dramatically reflects the colors that we've just read about, the stones, the rainbow of light, the flashes of lightning, and I believe also it would enhance the sounds of the thunder and the voices. What a sight. Now we come to verses uh, 6 and 8, and again we'll take the second half of verse 6, the first half uh, of verse 8 and verse 7. The four beasts. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts, full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had the face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. We'll come to across several occurrences of the word beast in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 13, the Antichrist is referred to as the beast. The word used to describe him there is a different word than what we see here. There it's a therion, a dangerous animal, a creature with venom, something poisonous. Here in chapter 4, John uses a word zoan, or the word we get our word zoo from, zoology, having to do with an animal, something that's alive. The emphasis is on the life and not the danger of a wild and poisonous creature. It's best to think of these four beasts simply as four living things. Let's look at how John describes them. They're seen in the midst of and around the throne. One author says they are cherubim, so close to the living God that they are called living beings. They can be both in the midst and in a circle around the throne because they are supporting the throne from beneath. You can look at Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 25 and 26, and read about the cherubim, the angels, that support the throne from beneath. This is the reason that the Hebrew text refers to God sitting upon the cherubim in Psalm 80, verse 1, and Psalm 99, verse 1. Verse 6 says, they're full of eyes before and behind. Verse 8 repeats by saying, they are full of eyes within. So before, behind, Within. I used to have a teacher in high school who had those kinds of eyes. <laughs> we all, you've, you've had them too, maybe a parent. But you say, I don't know how they do it. They must have eyes in the back of their head. Well, here, what does that mean? It means they see everything. They perceive what's going on around them. And that's exactly what's being said by these angels. Four living beings that are all perceptive. They're knowledgeable. John compares these creatures that he, again, he has never seen these before. And so he compares them with things that he has seen. We see that terminology, like. It's similar in appearance or character with things that he knows about. The first was like a lion. The second, like a calf. The, second, the third had a face like a man. The last, as a flying eagle. 
Each angel had six wings. Does that not remind you of what Isaiah chapter 6 tells us about the, the seraphim that are there? Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he did fly. And the covering of the face would be reverence. The covering of the feet, humility. The covering, uh, the, the, fly, the two used to, to fly would be service to God. You tell us what to do and we're ready to go. And so these angelic beings have six angels, or six wings. Uh, the last point today in verses, uh, the second half of verse 8 through verse 11, we see the most important thing. What, what are they doing in all of this magnificent image that we read about and see in our mind's eye? What are they there for? The worship of the eternal God. Verse 8, in the half, halfway through. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. They rest not day and night. They don't stop. This praise is continual. All day, all night. What a great lesson for us. There's never a time in our life when God is not worthy of our praise. You might be going through the darkest of valleys. That's the time to praise God. You may be rejoicing on a mountaintop today. That's a time to praise God. Praise him continually, any time of the day, any time of the night. They begin by proclaiming God's holiness. The attribute the angels choose here is his holiness. They repeat it three times. Holiness is his absolute purity, the separateness from sin. And again, that attribute is repeated three times. We use in our English language comparative terms and superlative terms like good, better, and best to describe things. God's holiness is described with three holies. Uh, Isaiah's trisagia, it's called, three holies. And so this is not a comparative holiness, but a superlative holiness. He is the one who is most holy. This threefold holiness also could be speaking of the Trinity. We believe in God existing in three persons. Each member of the Trinity, each person, is holy. The four angels proclaim his name. Lord, the one supreme authority. God, the one supreme deity. Almighty, the absolute and universal sovereign. They also proclaim his eternality, which was and is and is to come. What a great description of praise to our God. The elders follow the angels in worship in verses 9 through 11. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat upon the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him and, uh, that sat on the throne and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Notice they fall down before him. This is the proper response. When you come into the presence of God, you can do nothing else than fall before him in gratitude, in praise, in worship. 
They, cast, they, they worship God who sat on the throne. The, the word for worship here speaks of bowing in reverence and adoration. They cast their crowns before the throne. Any crowns that men receive are only because of God's grace. When you get to heaven and you're given a crown of righteousness, it was because of Christ's righteousness. When you get there and receive any of the other honorable crowns that are there, it's not because of you. It's because of what his grace has done in you. And so this act shows a recognition that God deserves the credit for everything that's good. We should have the same attitude here in this life. If we do anything that's worthy of recognition, the glory belongs to him alone. They proclaim his praise, verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord. He deserves all of our praise. It is fitting, it is meet to ascribe to him all the glory, the honor, and the power that are his. They verbalize the reasons he's worthy of praise. For, the word for there, causative. Because you have created all things. John had already written that. The beginning of his gospel, John 1, 3, all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. They were made for his pleasure. Now the word pleasure here is not something that's enjoyable necessarily, but it means his desire, his purposes, his design, his will. This was the will of God. He made everything because he willed to do so. For your pleasure, they are here. They exist. And for your pleasure, they were created. They are here by God's intended purpose. What a glorious scene we've just seen described. As we consider this this scene around the throne of God, Let us not forget where John was. He was on the Isle of Patmos, exiled by Rome. He was old. He was a prisoner. And he's writing to seven churches that are battling all types of things, religious heresies, moral failures, knowing how to respond to to wicked Roman rulers. The prince of darkness still holds a lot of control over the kingdoms of our world. Child of God, don't be discouraged by your current surroundings. John was allowed to look through that open door. And this morning, we've listened to the voice that John heard when he was told, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. I hope your spirit has been transported to heaven as John's was. That that glorious throne will be visible in our hearts and in our minds. May we never forget that the almighty, eternal God is seated on the throne. He is our creator. He's our redeemer. He's the one who does all things well. He's worthy of all our worship and of all of our praise. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for what John has written. We're so thankful for what you have revealed. And it's beyond our, our imaginations and our expectations. 
And yet we know that you will be there on that throne. And I pray that each day that we live, we would crown you and live for you today. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.